Okay, hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is... Tim Phillips. Tim, uh, you survived St. Patrick's Day okay? I know you, you like to go out and get your drink on every March 17th. I do. <laughs> I like the green beer. Yeah. And yeah, I don't care how they make it green. I just love, love green beer. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I had a good time. I'm not Irish, but I act Irish for the day. <laughs> <laughs> in a really inappropriate way. So yeah, I I did my usual lep, uh, my usual uh, St. Patrick's Day tradition: watch every Leprechaun movie as a sort of <laughs> self-flagellation. <laughs> That's how you get a true sense of Irish culture. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. Uh, yeah, everything about uh, gold and rainbows and eye gouging and uh, yeah, the whole the whole the whole Irish panacea. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. It was really good. Okay, good. now that we've offended Irish people, and credits <laughs> is a local movie show for local movie fans. We're here every Wednesday at three p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the news movies, which this week will be the new Oscar-winning dark drama. The Whale, which you can now rent on all fine VOD platforms, although uh, it does it is popping up in art houses still because it's uh, a winner that that's been happening a lot in the last week or two. That uh, following the Academy Awards, all of these um, I shouldn't say all the winners, um, but the <laughs> the the winners uh, some of the winners have been popping up again. Everything everywhere all at once has been yeah. at the bookshelf and the princess and the Apollo. Um, and I think the whales popped up at a couple of places too, but you can get it at home. And yeah, we will talk about why you should or shouldn't do that in a bit. But since the whale uh, features ben, uh, Brendan Fraser, excuse me, Academy Award winner Brendan Fraser, yes, uh, as <laughs> as a six hundred pound man um, wearing some elaborate, very elaborate prosthetics. Uh, also, Academy Award-winning prosthetics by a Montreal uh, makeup artist whose name I just so happened to... Well, I did have it here. Hold on. This is great radio as I scrolled through a thing yeah. here. Yeah, but... Uh, they won I, the I did... Oscar too, right? For the... Yes, I'm trying, yeah. to get, I'm trying to get the fellow's like name. Adrian Moreau is his name. Um, he was the lead makeup artist, and that was... Uh, he's from Montreal, and that was one of two oscars that the whale won yeah so now that we've uh established that tim had the idea of talking about other physical transformations undertaken by actors in movies um i think well i don't know what the the statistics are but you know for every brendan fraser who has to like sit in a makeup chair for hours there's somebody like christian bale who slims down to a hundred pounds um, and then bulks back up to play Batman. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. So th- there are two ways to go about this. One is, um, I don't know if you would call it cheating. Maybe somebody like Christian Bale, who's Ultra Method, would call it cheating to um, put on makeup. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he did for uh, Vice, right? Oh, he As did Dick for Vice. Cheney. Well, yeah. I think I think um, by that point he was like, "I'm too old to like savage my body like this." 
<laughs> I think that was one of his his um his his arguments for doing makeup for Vice because at at that point he was like well over forty, so I don't I don't hardly blame him. But yeah. that's the way you do it. You either um, put yourself through uh, physical hell um, by eating all the spaghetti you can, or you yeah. uh, put yourself through another type of physical hell sitting in the makeup chair. So it, it's got to suck if it's a bad movie too. I was thinking about that. You put all that work in, but usually, mm. like the, a lot of the examples I found were like good movies, acclaimed movies. But imagine you did that, and then the movie just sucked. You like put on sixty pounds, or you lost sixty pounds, and it was just a horrible movie. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I was gonna say, you, it, <laughs> uh, Gwyneth <laughs> Paltrow might know a bit about that from sh- the Shallow Hal experience, but that was <laughs> that was makeup job. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's. I, I think. I think whether the movie is good or not, I think there's always esteem for the performer who will torture themselves for performance. And that may be right. Cause you know, Brian Cox has been making a lot of waves lately about, you know, the, um, expletive nature of American method acting, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think there is still that respect for the actor who will torture themselves to, to get a good performance. Um, I expect both of our lists will have some mixture of, uh, you know, actual physical transformations and uh, some makeup assistance, but uh, we've each prepared three. So, Tim, why don't you kick us off with your first uh, performance? For sure, Adam. Yeah, when I suggested this, I was I suggested physical transformation because of Brandon Fraser and the whale, and I like Googled physical transformation and and found a lot of the ones I was familiar with already. Like you were saying, like. Um, Christian Bale and the Machinist and mm-hmm. Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. And so I decided I talked a lot about Raging Bull on a recent episode too. So I decided to go in just strictly the makeup direction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, given that the whale won best makeup uh, Oscar. And so I looked through and this category is a fairly young category in the Oscars just been going since 1981, the best makeup mm-hmm. and hairstyling. Mm-hmm. So I looked at like some winners and nominees from that and chose, I wanted to choose actors who I felt gave strong performances and had really transformational makeup as well, mm-hmm. as opposed to just, there's so much great makeup now in nowadays in, in films and, you know, and a lot of great superhero action movies, all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, but I wanted to just look at like really great performances. So I have a list that's all makeup. Mm-hmm. And n- number one on my list is Jessica Chastain from last year as Tammy Faye Baker in the eyes of Tammy <laughs> Faye. <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of a surreal viewing experience because I watched this film alone on demand late at night. And I, <laughs> it was last year. I think it was like a day or two before the Oscars because I'd heard Jessica Chastain was gaining momentum to win best actress. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll check this out. Mm-hmm. And from my childhood and we're the same age. So you might remember from your childhood too. I was aware of Tammy Faye Baker mm-hmm. and her husband, Jim Baker mm-hmm. who in the movies played by Andrew Garfield, mm-hmm. just from like news snippets from when I was a kid in like the late eighties. And just from their process, you know, their televangelist uh, background, um, and the controversy surrounding their quote unquote prosperity gospel and mm-hmm. the fraud indictments that they faced. And you'd see a lot of interviews back then with Tammy 
Tammy Faye Baker with the outrageous makeup, the heavy mm-hmm. eyeshadow, just, you know, protruding eyelashes. And she had thin eyebrows that I think eventually she had tattooed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought of her, like, I think a lot of people did is sort of like this cartoon character, right? Um, just somebody who was just over the top flamboyant, um, and also involved in some shady dealings, really, if we're truthful about like what they were doing, um, as far as the fraud that went on with, with their ministry. But I thought Jessica Chastain, she went further in her role and really exposed, uh, areas of Tammy Faye Baker's or Tam- Tammy Faye's life that. I wasn't aware of and how she was a real supporter for the LGBTQ plus community and uh, how she was at odds with a lot of her fellow so-called Christians and evangelists who, who were, uh, who, who deemed AIDS the gay cancer and said they had no problem with it. Um, She, she was on the other side and a real strong voice for, for the LGBTQ Q plus community. So I thought Jessica Chastain really did an excellent job bringing that to the film. And I thought the performances were really strong in it. It's a very strange movie. Uh, it, it may not work. There might be patches that don't work that, that well, but I thought the acting was really strong. Mm-hmm. And Jessica Chastain in particular is Tammy Faye. She went, and I wonder if her process, cause I've heard about different processes with acting. You've, Got some actors, especially in the United States, the method actors who are inside out, like find out more <laughs> about the character. If I'm going to be a taxi driver like Robert De Niro, I'm going to drive a cab for six months or something crazy. Mm-hmm. But she, I, I imagine that makeup, just the outrageous nature of that makeup, um, definitely put her into the character and the flamboyance to the character. But then finding more within that character to really make her a real human being. I thought that was a real triumph of, of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think an excellent performance. Um, and I read just researching for today's show that Jessica Chastain ha- did go through some issues after wearing all that makeup, like mm. some skin issues. So <laughs> yeah. definitely, um, like we're talking earlier about, you know, sacrificing for her craft. She definitely did in this role. And uh you know, I think there were some strong nominees that year. I may not have given her the best actress, but it's definitely an excellent performance. And mm-hmm. she really, she really captures that personality really quite well. And the makeup really helps her, I think, think get mm-hmm. to that place. So mm-hmm. that's number one on my list for the transformations. Yeah, she's by no means not the scariest uh, person in that movie, which goes to you know, Vince <laughs> casting Vincent D'Onofrio <laughs> to play Jerry Falwell. Um, yeah. the thing about going by uh, Oscars for for uh, ideas about good makeup is that uh, that that Oscar is the reason why we have to talk about uh, Academy Award winner Suicide Squad because <laughs> because <laughs> the Suicide Squad from uh, the, the David Ayer one. Uh, won the best makeup prize in 2017, but um, not neither here nor there. Um, I have a mixture of makeup and physical transformations, and like you, I was like looking through other lists developed and and other ideas people have, and I stumbled upon this one as it it intrigued me because 
it's so subtle but so effective um as a transformation and it's uh jake gyllenhaal as leo bloom in nightcrawler and you made me think to yourself well did did he really undergo like a, a physical transformation for this movie and, and you know look at pictures of jake gyllenhaal um ruggishly handsome uh well built uh he's not he's not a muscle man like he's not at the gym every day at 4 a.m like dwayne johnson but you know he takes care of himself um and then you see him in nightcrawler and he's gaunt and he's gangly and it looks like he doesn't get sunlight a lot and he's got this like long greasy hair and his eyes are bulging out so i'm (laughs) i'm not sure to what extent (laughs) um he was like going all method and like living kafka-esque for months before shooting (laughs) nightcrawler but it is incredibly effective um especially in scenes where he's just kind of like observing things like in the very first time like he stumbles upon uh at the beginning of the film he stumbles upon the car crash and he sees the people uh the the nightcrawlers the 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 people the freelancers who go out and film like these crime scenes they race around la to film crime scenes and then sell the footage to news stations. Um, it, he's, he's just observing the scene and you can see the bug eyes. He's just like, you can see like his brain calculating just, you know, what does it take? What's this guy doing? How can I do this? And there's something almost specter like about it. Like he's this like um, ghostly interloper on the scene. Um, he doesn't seem particularly physically imposing. Like he doesn't seem like a danger, but he doesn't seem right either. And of course, as the movie goes along, he takes more and more extreme measures to sort of win these, um, these news wars. Uh, It it, it becomes, you know, he becomes more and more seedy and more and more dangerous. And it's because like, you've been sort of like primed by his appearance the whole time. Like he just seems slight and, um, not very imposing, but because of that look, that look he always has in his eyes and the way his face is thin and he's pasty, um, you, you can't just help, you can't help looking at him and going, this guy ain't quite right and I don't want to end up on his bad side. And as the film goes on, you you know, you definitely do not want to end up on this guy, guy's bad side because he is driven and he is calculating and he will do anything. Anything to win. And it is, um, I mean, it is a combination of a great inner performance by Gyllenhaal. But, you know, like, the, again, the baggy clothes and his, his posture and just, you know, the, his physical affect is, it's it's like an earwig. It's one of those earwig performances where you're just looking at it and going, no, oh, that's not quite right. There's nothing not quite right with this guy. It's like, am I, am I rooting for him? Am I supposed to be rooting for him? Because he, he doesn't seem right. He seems off. He does, and, yeah. And it's just it's all in like the, the the physical performance, um, and 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 just the affect, the general affect that Leo Bloom has, and and it's it's really really effective. Jake Gyllenhaal is, um, I mean he's not the reason why that film works, but he's a pretty big, um, in terms of the the various reasons the film works, he's a pretty big part of it. For sure, and he's got this persuasiveness about him. It's like he can mm-hmm. convince people just because he's so passionate about what he's saying, although he's really off the rails, kind of thing. Right? <laughs> well, there, there's yeah. like there's a part of it that's like, okay, I'm going to agree to this, so I can get you out of my sight. I don't want to mm-hmm. deal with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's 
it's it, it you know it it just works on multiple levels. Um, so why don't we get to uh, Tim's number two pick? Okay, my number two pick is Jeff Goldblum as Doctor Seth Brundle in The Fly mm-hmm. from 1986, which is another winner of the Best Makeup Oscar and. I think over the years people have seen this film, but if you're, I don't know if you're younger, maybe you haven't watched it yet. Um, mm-hmm. It's shows an excellent physical transformation that takes place during the film and it happens during the film. So I talked about Tammy Faye earlier. So Jessica Chastain from moment one of the film is made up. But in this one, we start with uh, uh, Dr. Seth Brundle, which is one of many uh, nerdy scientist roles. Jeff Goldblum has had in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be his best one. He starts off as this passionate, energetic, totally human scientist who's demonstrating his telepods invention to science journalist Veronica, uh, played by Gina Davis. Mm-hmm. And he, he tests by teleporting baboons and he soon begins a relationship with Veronica. And then in a fit of drunken jealousy, he goes in the telepod by he's thinking by himself but there happens to be a fly in there and then the fly and his matter, they combine and we see the slow deterioration of Dr. Seth Brundle throughout the film as mm-hmm. he turns into a fly. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to watch because when he first starts having the symptoms of turning into a fly, it's positive. It like fits well with his passionate persona, his energetic persona. He, he's, filled with stamina and he's got and he, he's he has more agility he has more sexual prowess he's just really really like on top of life it seems like at that point but then we can see that he's turning into this fly and he's deteriorating during the film and you just watch him just become sicker and sicker and lose body parts and turn into something that's not quite human not quite an insect which he calls a brundle fly <laughs> and it's just it's interesting to watch and it it made me think like so often so often in movies you know the audience is asking for this happy ending or or the executives who make films think oh they want this happy ending but this movie has just become sad and tragic mm-hmm. as he de- deteriorates and it has a real tragic end to it and in and it was in 1986 and the audiences loved it. It did really well at the box office. It, and then from there, it continued to do better and better on VHS as the years went on. So I think it shows that you can have, you know, tragedy and people will still still enjoy it if they can see like that character development. And Jeff Goldblum is excellent. Gina Davis is excellent in it as well. Uh, but Jeff Goldblum, you can really just see, you know, him deteriorating. And this is where like makeup and the performance meld so well together um, because you can see him so desperate, uh, so desperate at the end, wandering, wanting to stay on this earth or become a, a, a new being or, you know, just be be something else than what he's becoming, which is just this sick fly, like uh, fly, like <laughs> being, and it has some really cool sort of like gross out stuff to it as well. When you mm-hmm. watch him mm-hmm. vomiting and 
stuff like the makeup just it's just excellent and it's it, you really go through a transformation as the film goes like the whole film's really about his transformation so i think that's a great example of the use of makeup to make a physical transformation in a film that's a really good film with a really strong performance mhm mhm yeah um yeah can't can't really build on that uh the fly is probably I don't want to say the peak of, of David Cronenberg because he's had many peaks, but uh, it, it definitely is kind of like him at the, the the top of commercial and critical success. While at the same time, it, you know, everything he had been doing so far had kind of been building up to the fly. It was kind of the ultimate expression of of uh, everything he had done uh, in movies to that point. Uh, but yeah, I like the fly a lot. Um, I also kind of similar era but maybe not quite a couple years beforehand um make up turning a great actor into something kind of otherworldly but also kind of very human as well um i'm referring to john hurt as john merrick in the elephant man uh david lynch's second film and uh john merrick of course was a real person in victorian england uh, he had a condition that uh, caused his body to grow abnormalities. Uh, it was particularly noticeable in his head because he had giant um, growths on his head that that changed its proportions. But it also affected um, his his chest and, and his arms. Uh, nobody knows uh, to this day sort of what was wrong with him, despite the availability of DNA testing. It, it's been incredibly hard to pinpoint what um what john merrick suffered from and that's mostly has to do with how remains were handled um in you know when when he passed away versus a hundred years later but in the elephant man it's it's this very weird uh kind of amalgamation of a deeply personal 70s auteur era character study uh, that's dressed up like a 1930s Universal monster movie, and it's uh, when, when you watch it, it's 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 got this same kind of because it's shot in black and white, but there's something to the sound design of it where you can sort of still hear the clicks of the film reel, and and it's like it was recorded on a phonograph almost. Um, it, it has this very bizarre aesthetic to it, but at the center of this is this like incredibly touching, um, really. Um, really engrossing performance by by hurt as merrick who and i this is one of those instances where i think digital doesn't do the movie any favors because um the prosthetics look kind of plasticky and fake when you're kind of watching a you know a, a digital you know projection or on digital dvd or blu-ray or it, i don't i don't think that digital cleanup helps but um there's there's something you kind of almost forget at times as you kind of get engrossed in the performance, just like how made up John Hurt is. And of course, John Hurt has such yeah. a distinctive voice as well. He's always playing these like kind of put upon people. Poor John Hurt, you know, it was it was the year before he was an alien. He's the first guy to die in alien is the, the he's the guy who has the chest burster scene is the first actor to to, to go through that random rule. Um, but it, it's 
he has such a distinctive voice. It's kind of this growl, but it's also very educated and, and very, um, very soft, um, very emotive. And that, I mean, that comes shining through with the Merrick performance. And there's, you know, scenes where he's, he's clearly struggling. Like they're trying to make him the, the prim and proper Victorian gentleman. And he's trying to serve tea and is visiting with people. And of course, cause it's, 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 it's more than just a, an abnormality that changes his appearance. It, it, it you know, his condition had a, a tremendous effect on, how he was able to walk and how he was able to carry things and, and handle things. Um, there's also a really great scene where um, the doctor and his wife are played by Anthony Hopkins are talking to him about mm-hmm. family and they're showing him pictures of their family. And um, you know, it's, it's like, it's like just, it's just a scene. It's just a scene of two Groups of two, like three people talking about their background and their families and how they ended up in that room together in that moment. But there's this like visage because of, of John Merrick's condition. And he doesn't even, it, it doesn't, there, there's such a thing where he doesn't occur to, it, 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 it seems like he genuinely forgets that he is different in that moment. Mm-hmm. And that plays against like sort of what you're watching. And, and then, there's the, the, the doctor's wife ends up breaking down because he's talking about his mother in such a loving way. Yeah. And the, the walls for, fall down. Like, yes, he, he has this monstrous visage, but he's just this very gentle person. And it's one of the, it's one of the moments where, you know, actor kind of overcomes the, 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 the makeup and you can, you can see the gentle man that John Merrick is um, underneath the makeup, even though, or underneath, you know, the the approximation of what John Merrick looked like, it's just it's such a hard thing to do is to put on this affect and then make the audience forget it's there. And there's so many moments like that in the Elephant Man that by the time you get to the end and he's sort of like being chased by the mob through the London Underground, yeah. um, it's it's incredibly hard not to be sympathetic and to see, frankly, the people as the monsters, and that's where like. That's where kind of like the real universal kind of thing gets going is that is in that moment where it feels very much like the end of a monster movie. But I digress. Um, let's get to the, the third pick. Okay. My third pick, Adam, I'm going to save us some time because I picked okay. John Hurt as John Merrick <laughs> and the Elephant Man. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies of all time i just think it's it, it's terrific in the black and white cinematography like you mentioned it mm-hmm. really brings you into this world um and i did a little research and uh the elephant man is the reason the academy awards started the best makeup category uh because mm-hmm. there was a sort of pu- public sort of outrage that it it didn't win an award for that or the fact that i think the elephant man didn't even win an oscar it was up for eight that year that's right yeah. um but there's such stiff competition. John Hurt uh, is amazing in the lead role. He, he, you forget he's wearing the, you forget that he's got the deformities after a while, or you're sort of, like you said, you're sort of brought into it mm-hmm. where y- you can tell that he sort of forgets, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, that he has these deformities because he's brought into this uh, sort of, with his doctor and his doctor's wife are so empathetic to him and are so uh, welcoming to him 
And that scene you mentioned, yeah, it gets me every time with the doctor's wife where she breaks down when he's talking about his mother. Mm -hmm. And Anthony Hopkins in that movie, I think he's terrific. It's like one of the best performances, I think, of his career in a way, but it's so Mm -hmm. understated. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause he's, he's the doctor playing off of John Hurt's performance. And, uh, um, yeah, I did a little more research and it took seven to eight hours in makeup for John Hurt mm-hmm. to become, uh, John Merrick and two hours to remove the 15 layers of prosthetics. So <laughs> he definitely committed to the role. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, it was directed by David Lynch mm-hmm. and I went on a David Lynch binge listening to interviews with him recently and oh such a treat <laughs> yeah i'm glad to hear I'm, cl- I'm glad to hear recently he's he did praise elephant man because i know i think in past interviews or at least there's a rumor that he wasn't a big fan because it wasn't as you know surreal as his other work and it was mm. done in sort of a studio system mm. um but he talked about because it was his first you know real movie after eraser head which was more in a lot of ways, like an art project for him, they worked on for years mm. um, that now he was with this team of actors, you know, he had producers giving him notes and stuff. And he, he, he made an excellent film. Mel Brooks produced the elephant man, which is a weird factoid as well. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I just thought all the performances were excellent, but especially John Hurt in the central role uh, you really feel empathy for that character so that when he is chased at the end and there's that famous line, I'm not an animal, I'm a human being. Yeah. It really land, lands hard. It's not just it like a catchphrase yeah. or anything. It's like you really feel for him. Yeah. So I agree with you on that one. I definitely uh, <laughs> definitely think that that was a great transformation. All right. Well, I'll make my last one quick too because it's pretty straightforward. It's uh, I know The Dark Knight Rises is not to everyone's taste, but uh, I think we have to have some some room for universal acclaim for Tom Hardy as Bane, um, because like he is kind of a beast in that movie. And you know, in, in the first time Bane was put on film was in Batman and Robin. He was played by a wrestler, and it was kind of used as a joke. So, I mean, Bane in the comic books is like maybe Batman's greatest foe in terms of both. Um. It, it, both in terms of like uh, mental acuity and physical force. Um, so he, Bane really gets the short shrift in Batman and Robin. But I think the promise is held in The Dark Knight Rises. And for Tom Hardy, who, you know, comes up, uh, you know, good looking guy, but, you know, again, takes care of himself. You wouldn't necessarily call him a beast, but in Dark Knight Rises, he is a beast. And when you see, like, Bane in kind of, like, in full, not for the first time in the movie, but, like, in the first time since the prologue, which is kind of all about this, like, massive, like, real, you know, plane stunt in midair. Um, But in the first, like, full Bane reveal scene, um, when they're in the sewer and they bring Commissioner Gordon into the sewer uh, to be questioned... And he stands up and he's shirtless. And the way the camera captures like that full force, um, like the muscles, the mass, this guy could beat you to death with one punch and you feel it and you you understand what a physical threat he will um, pose to Batman. And because it's Tom Hardy, he gives such a great performance as, you know, showing just how like cold and calculating Bane is as well. But it's really that physical transformation. What's interesting is 
Tom Hardy kind of worked his way up to it. This wasn't just like a, you know, one day he started hitting uh, the 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 dumb weights. <laughs> you know, he he does sucker punch, not the um, Zack Snyder sucker punch, but it was another boxing movie. He does sucker punch. He does Bronson and he does Warrior. So it's almost like he was working his way up to doing uh, to Bane by doing all these like MMA movies and boxing movies and stuff. So. Um, I, I want to give Tom Hardy that love because that, that is a well and true. I mean, we talk a lot about actors working out, hitting the gym to get ready for their superhero roles. Tom Hardy took it to the next level and maybe a couple of levels above that. And uh, we salute him. So that brings us to, well, the end of this half of the show. We're going to get into our review of The Whale because We've just been priming the pump for this whale review, so uh, we're going to take a break and come back with that. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Send him home. Do you feel lightheaded, Charlie? Look at me. She's trying to help him. Who? Ellie. She was trying to help him. She just wanted to send him home. Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? Okay, and that was a clip from The Whale. It is the new film from Darren Aronofsky, and it stars Brendan Fraser, Sadie Sink, Ty Simpkins, Hong Chow, and Samantha Morton. Uh, written by Samuel D. Hunter, based on his play. And boy, can you tell this was a play? Yep, yeah, that's what <laughs> I felt too. I and once I saw it in the end credits, I'm like, oh, this all makes sense. I didn't know it was based on a play, but once mm. I saw based on a play, I'm like, yeah. All and, these people uh, just coming into his his living room all the time, you know, in and out. Like, yeah, it's a sitcom kind of. Um, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, and you know, maybe if you're wearing all the prosthetics Brendan Fraser's wearing, maybe you don't want to be like walking around downtown. Um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> um, anyway, aside from it being a play or based on a play, what were your uh, thoughts and feelings about uh, the whale? Yeah, so it kind of comes back to the, the the play in a way, but like I, I lo- I think overall I enjoyed the the film. I thought Brendan Fraser gave a very good performance in the lead role. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there were some other good performances as well. Uh, but it talks, it talks a good game. I thought of this afterward. It talks a good game about being honest. Like mm. his whole thing in the lead role, he's an English professor and he wa- just wants his students and his daughter and everything just to be honest when they write. And I felt like with a lot of the subplots and some of the religious stuff too, I just felt like it wasn't totally honest. Mm. And I, I, for me, I know a lot of criticism has come uh, for the film for like the fat suit and is it like fat shaming for me? I think it would have been even more effective if it just stuck with Brendan Fraser's character, Mm. a lot more of, him alone and with his nurse and just what he's going through mm-hmm. then the constant sort of parade through in you know with the um there's the new life sort of like mormon type mm-hmm. uh person who comes to the door to try to save his soul and then that that person enters his life and there's all these sort of like sub characters even the daughter like i found that kind of affecting but at the same time i was like I don't know. It, it I, I felt like the the scenes with Brendan Fraser and and his nurse, who I think she was up for an Academy Award as well. Yeah, Hung Chow. Hung Chow. I thought there's a little more there. Um and then you could really show his isolation because as being the six hundred pound man, I like the devices where he's on like the Zoom call with his students and he doesn't turn his camera on. He's ashamed yeah. of himself doesn't turn the camera on you could show more of the isolation mm. um i think that the theatrical elements kind of intruded on that and mm. then we end up with i just think a, l- a little too much going on um mm. when it could have just been more focused on on the one element um but i think uh yeah it gives us a strong performance and he's got this yeah this brendan fraser positivity even in the fat suit you know yeah the way he talks like just his tone of voice it's just always even when he's depressed or binge eating or what have you he still has this positivity and they incorporated that in the film maybe that's in the play as well that he's Mm -hmm. positive regardless of his daughter's evil or he's (laughs) yeah he's about to die you know um uh but you know i i liked that i think in a way there's a very charismatic lead performance by Brendan Fraser. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there was a lot that fell apart in the film that gave, that didn't, didn't work for me. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. This, if, if this movie is good, it's because Brendan Fraser is so good. Um, he, he, he really is carrying this movie, which is why I, I don't mind the fact that, you know, he, he, he won the Oscar because th- th- this movie utterly fails without him. Um, he does, and, and I'm not 100 percent sure whether it's performance or whether it's there's just like a natural, um, a natural just like warm feeling. Like I, I can't find anyone who like says a bad word about Brendan Fraser. Like even mm-hmm. in, in his movies that aren't good, people are like, but Brendan Fraser is an amiable presence or like <laughs> something <laughs> like that. You know, nobody hates yeah. this guy. And everyone's rooting for him because of you know the the rev you know his his discussion about his um, assault and the depression that caused him and how that came along the same time as his breakup as his marriage and he's been having mental health issues the last several years. This is his big comeback. So everyone's like, "Yeah, welcome back, Brendan Fraser. Boy, you are so great in this whale." And he is, mm-hmm. no doubt. Um, 
but I do wonder how much of this is like the Brendan Fraser comeback story. Um, I, I kind of disagree with the whole thing about truth, the truthfulness angle about this, because I think the point Aronofsky is trying to make is that, you know, everyone is says they want truth, but it, that doesn't necessarily extend to themselves. I want truth in life, in everything. Um, but I don't want the truth. I don't want to say the truth because mm-hmm. that, that could that, that could mean repercussions for me. I don't want to hear the truth about me because, like most human beings, I have a fragile ego. Um, so uh, so much of I, I think so much of the the undercurrent of the, the movie is like what is truth, um, and the conflict between us wanting truth while also not wanting truth and to take part in truth. We want everyone else to be truthful about everyone else. But we they, we don't want to be truthful about ourselves or others to be truthful with us. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where the the movie is going to, and you see that in the relationship with the daughter. A lot, so much about the relationship with the daughter is what is true. Um, is she the little brat the mother says she is, or she's like a monster in the making, where she's like in five years she's going to be in jail for you know running a Ponzi scheme or something, <laughs> or, <laughs> or is she like lost? Is she or is she this? Is is she deep inside this person who wrote this essay he adores about Moby Dick that she wrote? She was she was eleven or twelve or whatever. The thing I don't, the thing I didn't, in, in terms of truth, is the ticking time clock on this movie. Where at the beginning he's told like he he maybe has a week to live, which I'm I find kind it rings kind of false. It's almost like the the you know they should have the ghost girl crawl of the TV and say seven days. I mean it just feels that fake yeah. put, and they put, put the day each time like monday tuesday wednesday right yeah but i agree with you like having the i think in the play he's a morbid kid and in the um in the movie he's kind of more eventually i think having him come in and out is is wasted time uh, i think that storyline goes nowhere mm-hmm. um sadie sink i thought she was good but th- there's some there's like some stuff where she like records the the the, the missionary kid and uh, yeah. is is like trying to extort him or something. That like a lot of that seemed kind of false and fake. The the heart of this movie though is Brendan Fraser and Hong Chow. And I think I said back when the the Oscar nominations were announced, I'm going to pretend that Hong Chow's nomination for the whale was actually for the menu. But after after having watched the menu. Uh, she is good here. She brings a real wryness, a real kind of. Um, she she tries to cover her humanity and her feelings with cynicism. She's hurting just as much as uh, Charlie is, mm-hmm. but she can't kind of show it because he's kind of wasting away in self destruction, and she's kind of like the one person who can like anchor him and tether him. So she can't give herself up to that. But I mean, there there's there are a couple of like really beautiful scenes between um Hong Chow and Brendan Fraser that um are funny and warm and also very bittersweet can bring a tear to your eye. So like when the movie focuses on them, it really sings. And when it when it becomes like the sitcom or you know, he he develops a, a friendship through the closed door with the the Pete's delivery guy, that's yeah. that's the kind of stuff that doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't. I actually thought it'd be interesting if the pizza delivery guy, like if he, if um, Brendan Fraser, what's his name in the film is the Charlie, teacher, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. If Charlie 
did if you did go into like cardiac arrest or something and the pizza guy happens to be there or something then that could have connected it but otherwise that would have more more interesting yeah otherwise it's just he's dropping off pizza to him and and uh charlie doesn't want him to see him so we we kind of get that already with the school with uh the zoom calls at school and all that and it's just adding more time to the film that i don't think was needed um well it's also kind of the elephant man moment in the movie where he 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 delivers the pizza he leaves them outside the door takes the money out of the mailbox and then right kind of as we're kind of getting to the end um he drops the pizzas off and makes it so that he leaves and then charlie comes out to get the pizzas and the pizza delivery guy's standing there so we can see who this person is and he runs away in disgust and and that starts uh you know that starts charlie down this binge eating rabbit hole that yeah it's it's just that like that's not i understand why it's there why that scene's there but it just it feels so predictable and plotting and and i i don't know what it's there to serve it's like we develop this like yeah this relationship they, that just ends with fat shaming essentially yeah they like needed a trigger for him to do that binge eating like you're saying yeah. and i did i did find compelling like his emotional and binge eating because i think a lot of us have done that before so mm-hmm. you can kind mm-hmm. of identify and sort of like nature of addiction as well um because he did uh because his nurse tells him okay you've got congenital heart failure here and mm-hmm. he googles it mm-hmm. and he has a candy bar in front of him and he decides not to eat that candy bar because what he's read online mm-hmm. and I, I found that mm-hmm. that a fascinating scene but then he he goes back to it and then he eats like three of them kind yeah. of thing and <laughs> i you know i think you know even though this is someone who's 600 pounds you might not see in your everyday life I think Brian Fraser does an excellent job and the film does too, just showing like he's suffering from what a lot of people suffer from, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of that addictive personality, binge eating, emotional eating. And so those moments, even though it's him by himself with just going through a pizza box, I found that compelling. Darren Aronofsky, he does, he has that sort of over the top mentality too, sometimes mm-hmm. where it's, it works a little bit but sometimes when the music starts coming on and it's like it was a bit much for me as well mm-hmm. like and because one of my favorite movies of all time is the wrestler with mm-hmm. darren aronofsky with uh, mickey rourke mm-hmm. and i was trying to think did i like mickey rourke's performance more than brendan fraser i probably did but at the same time brendan fraser is excellent in this mm-hmm. and i just felt with the wrestler it was a little more subdued in those moments whereas mm-hmm. this i think maybe because it's based on uh theatrical production and it was adapted by the uh, playwright it just has these moments like okay the swooning music's happening now or the 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 heightened music while he goes to eat the pizza you know i felt we're gonna get a close-up of his face in the fat suit now you know Mm -hmm. Uh, that didn't overwhelm the film but there were just little moments here and there too that I'm kind of critical of as well that I felt like it was just a little overdone. Yeah. You, you um, know, the the weird part of it is too, I was thinking a lot about the wrestler watching this too, um, because it almost feels at times like a remake of the wrestler because it's about someone who um, is kind of desperate, uh, kind of addicted. Like there, there's a theme of addiction at both. Like you get, there's, you know, he's addicted to kind of eating and, 
in in the whale and in um the wrestler's kind of addicted to a way of life or sort of like lost valor or you know past glory um there's also this threat of self-destruction and then the wrestler you kind of get it um because he's uh he's been told um you know he gets back into the ring he might essentially be killing himself that he's he's got this condition um he he tries to reconnect with his daughter that ends up imploding uh he tries to make a connection with this uh stripper um that ultimately i mean he he thinks that they have a real connection of course they don't and so when he gets to the end and he gets into the ring and he starts feeling the symptoms that you know he he may be literally about to kill himself in the ring and you see that look on his face as he gets up on the the ropes to do his move and he knows like this is probably about to kill me this is a this is a, this is like me going out in a blaze of glory i know it it's coming mm-hmm. and you feel it because he literally has nothing left he looks out to the ring. He looks out into the crowd, and he sees that Marissa Tomei is gone because that was never real. If she was even there watching that that show to begin with, mm-hmm. but that's not the same with Charlie. He has, um, I can't remember what Hong Chao's character's name is, but he he has her. Yeah, is making inroads with his daughter. He has this kid. <laughs> You know, again, I I don't like the character. I don't like the storyline. But you know, he's keeps the kid keeps coming back. We could have done something with the kid. Um, yeah, it's it just like he does not have that empty of life. He does have things, to, and and I understand like the, the the grief and the depression, and he doesn't feel like he has anything to live for. But he does, and it feels like Aronofsky's treating the characters in the exact same way. And you sort of have this same kind of epiphany at the end, yeah. where he he's going to do this one last. Thing he's gonna get yeah. up off his seat and walk to his daughter, right? Um, but again, it, it, it hits differently because we've seen Charlie. He actually has a lot to live for. The Mickey Ward character and the wrestler really doesn't. So he's gonna go out in that blaze of glory. But yeah, you're almost cheering him on to get on the top ropes and the wrestler yeah. in a yeah. way. And Hong Chao's character Liz is her name. Uh, That's nurse. right. That's right. Uh, but I I agree. Now that you mentioned this, it's. Uh, yeah, because it's very similar in a way. Because the wrestler at the end, he goes in the ring against his doctor's advice, mm-hmm. could probably kill himself. And Charlie in this uh, same thing, he he had the, it's revealed he has the money. He could have gone to the hospital, but he yeah. he had told Liz that he didn't have the money and he couldn't afford the health insurance yeah. to go. So he could have gone months ago to the hospital. He could go now to the hospital for like emergency care. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't doesn't want to do that. He wants to go out in his own sort of what makes him happy. So mm-hmm. what makes the Mickey Rourke character happy in the re- wrestler is wrestling and the adoration of the crowd and coming in with his walk-in music and getting on the top rope. And for Charlie, it's hearing hearing that essay that his daughter wrote that's honest about her true feelings about Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> that Ellie, his daughter, played by Sadie Sink. Uh, talks about and having having her read that to him in this moment, like right before he dies, kind of thing. So he wants that, you know, to go out on his terms and what he enjoys doing when he could have could have gone to the hospital. Maybe they could have saved his life. He's not mm. doesn't want that. Mickey Rourke doesn't want to go back to his life 
having to like cut meat in a grocery store or whatever he's doing, right? Yeah, or the deli counter to, yeah. to pay the bill. So, so it is. Yeah, and I, you mentioned it's very, very similar in that regard. I just think the wrestler was much more effective. Oh, the wrestler was effective yeah. because it, it it was like a literal like. I have nothing else to live for, but it just in the way Charlie clearly does. And he's clearly having an effect. And, you know, when he, when you find out that he has all this money and our other one, Liz finds out he also, it's a betrayal because she's like, he's like her last connection too, because we find out that it was her brother who was Charlie's um, boyfriend uh, who, who died by suicide. And so, you know, he's kind of betraying her. And, and I feel like that's never really addressed. It's like, she's kind of given, of herself she's given up her family um because of what happened to her brother um and the way her family treated her brother and their church treated her brother and has formed this like mutual codependency with charlie and he's betraying her and we just kind of let that go by and you know that i don't i'm not sure i'm not sure what could have been done with that but it, it just it, it feels like something that should have been given more room to play out Instead of we get this, like, we're going to go back to the self-destructive cycle and um, the the desk drawer full of candy bars and the, the delivery of the pizzas and the calzones every night. And it just it, it feels a bit hollow, even even as, even though at the center of this is a really great, nuanced, loving um, performance by a man we're all rooting for this this lovely this lovely man named brendan fraser who puts so who wears his heart on his sleeve the whole time and i just i really wish the movie was more worthy of that yeah and it it is based on the play we mentioned and i did some research and the playwright had his own struggles with obesity and mm. um chronic obesity overeating and so it's based based on a, a true story in that regard mm. i felt like that rang true but some of the other like we said some of the subplots that get involved here mm -hmm. don't ring true like it does take place in idaho mm. and the playwrights from idaho a small town in idaho so he uh there'd be a lot of religious fervor there i'm sure and a lot of people try persuade you to that but it just felt like in a film where you only have so much time i felt like that just distracted from like the core of the film for me yeah. and uh and sadie sink as ellie i really like her in stranger things um <laughs> she plays mad max in stranger things mm -hmm. and she's good in good in this um I almost felt it was just like one more element. If they could have just stripped it down, yeah, uh, really focus on Brendan Fraser and what he was going through, and like allude to like what happened with his boyfriend committing suicide, and yeah, the boyfriend who is the brother of his nurse Liz, it could have focused more on that. I think it would have been a better movie, but it was a great performance by Brendan Fraser, and uh, I'm happy for him for winning the Oscar. I know it was a big moment. Oh, so am I. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. uh I, I just they this this could have been you know, they could have thrown some elements overboard, and I think this would have been a bit sharper, but we'll have to leave that there. We hope you uh like this week's show. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find us on our website, endcreditsradioshow.com, or you can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday on Podbean, or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on end credits 
Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and End Credits Radio Show, and we're on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And Tim, where can people find you out there on the internets? On the internet, you can find me Flash in the Deadpan on social media. And uh, yeah, please reach out. Alrighty. If you have any any ideas <laughs> about anything? <laughs> about anything? Just talk to Tim. He's so lonely. I, I'm very lonely right now. <laughs> I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Source of Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And we shall return here on CFRU next Wednesday at 3 p.m., for another edition of End Credits, and we will, of course, see you then.